All right, Genesis chapter 18 is where we left off last week. We kind of left off somewhat toward the latter half of Genesis chapter 18 last week. Again, continuing to look at the life of Abraham tonight, we'll see Abraham and really a very interesting comparison, as I started to say in our last session together, between Abraham uh, and Lot, who we'll see in Genesis chapter 19. And not that we'll take our time to develop a whole lot of that tonight, but I would just say if you're ever looking for a, uh, an interesting character study or contrast between uh, a, a godly believer and someone who seeks to walk in the Spirit and live by faith, as in comparison to a carnal believer, uh, someone who may have a belief in the Lord, but yet lives a very carnal and a worldly life, and such as possible, Paul tells the uh, Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that though they were believers, Paul says, but yet you're carnal, and you're, you're like spiritual, immature babies. You're like a church full of nursery kids is almost like what Paul's saying to them, and that though they had a relationship with the Lord, they were very immature and very worldly, and in a sense, kind of like uh, Ellen Radpath used to say, uh, saved soul and wasted life. Uh, and, and that's possible. And in some senses, when you look at Abraham and Lot, uh, you'll see that Abraham is a picture of what it means to to be a man who's eternally focused and to live by faith and to, to walk in, pre in the presence of the Lord and to be a friend of God, as the Bible calls him. He earns that title in a couple places. Where Lot, who the Bible does indicate is a believer, it seems, is clearly the exact opposite. He's on the other end of the spectrum. He, he's a friend of the world and someone who becomes very friendly with the world and as a result of that kind of, in essence, wastes his own life, squanders his own testimony and really leads his family down that path as well, unfortunately, as they're there together with him. Now, we saw last time as we went through part of chapter 18 that the Lord again had come and appeared to Abraham he had reconfirmed to Abraham again the, the promise of his uh, having a son, he and Sarah, that at the set time, within a year, that they were going to receive this child of promise, Isaac. And as Sarah laughed, again, the Lord, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Again, just challenging them to recognize that there are no limitations with God. And then we saw as we were sort of leaving off, where again, remember, it was the Lord and two angels who had come to visit Abraham in this divine visitation. And Abraham recognized very clearly that this was the Lord and two angels who were together with him, these three men that came to him and appeared there at his uh, tent in the uh, area of Mamre. At that point, the Lord in verse, we saw 17, said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And what the Lord began to do, we saw, because he knew that he had a plan for Abraham's life, and through Abraham, all the earth would be blessed. And because Abraham had a close walk with God and was a man in intimate fellowship with God, God revealed things to him. Again, the Bible tells us in the Psalms, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. Again, when you're very close with someone, sometimes they may share a secret with you that they wouldn't share with someone else. And it's only because of that closeness you have in a relationship. And the Bible says that sometimes the secret of the Lord, things that the Lord may want to share, 
He shares with those who are in close intimacy with him. I love the picture in the uh, New Testament where John the Apostle uh, is there and and as they're having the supper together, it tells us that John is leaning back against the Lord's breast, that he's leaning back against the chest of Jesus. And and there's a dialogue that seems to go on there regarding the upcoming events and the betrayal. And I think John heard certain things that the other disciples didn't in that particular conversation at that dinner. And it's interesting, the reason he heard it is because he was close to the heart of the Lord. It literally says he was leaning back against the Lord's breast, against his chest area. And, And I encourage you, be someone who's close to the heart of the Lord, because the Lord wants to share things. And at times he will give us maybe an insight to something that he is doing so that you might be in step with the Lord in cooperation with what he's doing. And I think that comes with having that close, intimate relationship. And Abraham received that. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Uh, And what God was about to do, of course, unfortunately in this situation, was he was about to bring his just judgment against the society of Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin and their iniquity had reached its full and God's mercy had been exhausted, and God judges and and measures time morally. And at this time, God was going to bring his judgment against them. We saw in verse 20, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great because their sin is very grave. They had become extremely wicked and ungodly and turned away from God and become involved in such horrendous practices morally and and in every way. And we'll see that in chapter 19, just some glimmers of that. But God had come to that place where the only righteous thing left to do at this point was judge. And we talked about how God doesn't like to judge. Uh, In fact, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that when God orchestrates his judgment, that it's a strange thing to him. In other words, it's not, it, it feels to God abnormal to judge because like a loving father, that no parent enjoys disciplining their child. God doesn't enjoy bringing judgment. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible say. So when God does bring judgment at times, it's only because he has no other recourse Once we have exhausted his mercy and we have gone to the end of his grace and his patience and his long-suffering, which is quite an extensive thing, at a certain point, God has no other option to remain righteous, to remain holy and a good and just God. He must at times come to the place of judgment. And this is where Sodom and Gomorrah had come to. And the Lord was revealing this to Abraham. And remember, Abraham, having a heart that's in tune with the Lord, close to the Lord, he's burdened because who's down in Sodom? Lot. His nephew Lot. Remember back in chapter 13 when they separated, Abraham took the high road as the more mature one. And rather than trying to take control and get for himself, he said, you know what, Lot, it's time that we separate. God's orchestrating a separation. You pick whatever you want. And I'll just take whatever's left. I'll back up. I'll defer whatever you want. You take your route and and I'll just, I'll take whatever's left. And he humbly just steps back, keeps a loose grip on things, trusts God to orchestrate what he wants for his own life. And remember a lot, it says, cast longing eyes towards Sodom because Sodom was fertile and it was beautiful. It was like the land of Egypt, another type of the world. And Lot having a heart after those kind of things, being a man led by his sensual appetites and worldly opportunities it says that he looked towards sodom and then it says he pitched his tent towards sodom and we'll see tonight he actually sitting then in the gates of sodom and there's that progression of how things go but abraham knows that lot and his family his nephew who he loves his family member 
He knows his nephew, whom he loves, like we do our family, is in a really bad place. He is entrenched in a, a spot where he should not be. And Abraham's burden, because he knows God's judgment's about to fall on that society because of its ungodly practices. And Abraham, being in tune with the heart of the Lord, he begins to now intercede on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, we said last week, Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, tells us that God seeks for an intercessor. God looks for a man, looks for someone, the Bible says, again, not a ministry, not a whole movement, not Christian musicians. It says that God looks for a man. He looks for a man, a woman, one person at times, just to stand in the gap and to intercede, to try and defer his judgment. So the Spirit of God prompts Abraham to intercede because God's always looking for a reason not to judge. Now, in the case with Sodom and Gomorrah, it was so bad, God had no other recourse. But nonetheless, men like Abraham, men like Moses, Samuel, different individuals we see in the Scripture at times, they would intercede at times to try and seek to get God's judgment to be refrained. And, and that, that prompting to do that, we talked about last time, that comes from the Spirit of God. Because God's the one who doesn't want to judge. Let us never glorify some saint as a super saint of, wow, well, it's a good thing that Moses interceded because God's a real hothead. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes I think we read the Bible and you see Moses pleading, God, please don't destroy the, you know, don't destroy your people because then they'll mock us. And, and, and it looks almost like Abraham is the compassionate, patient, level-headed one and like God's the hothead who's just ready to drop the gavel. Well, who put that in the heart of Moses to do God did. Who puts that in the heart of a person to intercede for a loved one that's unsaved or somebody who's backslidden and is messed up? In the, who puts that in the heart of God, into the heart of a person? God does. God, by his spirit, uses us in cooperation through prayer and intercession to partner with him in the things that's really on his heart to do. And this is what we now find Abraham doing. Abraham, as the two angels went towards Sodom, the Lord remained there and we left off in verse 22 of chapter 18 last week. Then the men turned away from there. They went to Sodom. That's the two angels. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So he's standing before the Lord now. And Abraham came near, verse 23, chapter 18, and said to God, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Notice he says, verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge, here's an underliner statement, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, Abram begins his intercession based upon his clear understanding of the character of God, that God is the judge of the earth and that he's a righteous and a just judge. And because of that, he begins to plead and he says, Lord, far be it from you, you're a just judge. And because you're a just and a good judge, any good and just judge, number one, is able to distinguish between what is truth and what is error what is right and what is wrong, and distinguish between what is righteous and what is unrighteous, what is good and what is evil. And he says, you are the judge of all the earth. And he says, you wouldn't just bring down your judgment and not distinguish 
between the righteous and the unrighteous. God, that, that's not your nature. You would never do that. God, you would make a distinction and you would make a clear separation before you judged to make sure you only judge those who deserved your judgment and those who weren't in a place of deserving your judgment. You would clearly distinguish and separate them before you brought your judgment. And we, we see this manifested of God's character throughout the scripture. And Abraham, who knew well the heart of the Lord, he uses that for his basis of intercession. So he says, Lord, you would clearly make a distinction. You wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. You wouldn't just pour out one general punishment and say, well, sorry, though you don't deserve it, you just you have to go through it because of their mistakes. The Bible says that the soul that sins shall surely die. Ezekiel 18 is all about that the sins of the parent aren't punished in the child, and the sins of the child aren't punished upon the parent. That, that God says, no, the soul that sins takes responsibility and accountability before a holy and righteous judge on their own as we stand before God. And we see this throughout Scripture. So Abraham now begins to plead with the Lord, and he says, Lord, verse 24, suppose there were 50 righteous in the city. So what's he doing? He's thinking about Lot being down there and Lot's uh, wife and the few children it seems that Lot had. And he, remember, at one time had stepped in and rescued the people of uh, Sodom in a couple chapters back in chapter 14. So maybe he's been to Sodom. He knows it's a pretty corrupt and grievously sinful culture. But he, he's taking a stab and thinking, well, see, there's Lot and his family. I mean, that's maybe almost 10 theirs. There's got to be a couple other people in the community that are, I mean, somewhat decent. And Lord, if there were 50 people, would you withhold your entire judgment for 50 people? If there were 50 righteous people, would you hold back and refrain and allow more time before your judgment fell upon all those who were deserving of judgment? Look at verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Now, please don't miss that. That's incredible. You want to talk about the mercy of God. God says, though their sin was grievous, though they were a corrupt people in every way that were ripe and deserving the judgment of God as a nation and a people group, God says, but you know what? I am merciful enough that if I find if I find 50 righteous people, that would satisfy me enough to refrain my judgment for a season and to hold off still from bringing my judgment. Now, I bring that to your attention to say this. I look at that and I say, wow, because that shows me that a small remnant of godly people matters to the Lord. Even just a small, God says, if there are 50 righteous people, that matters to me. Fifty godly people, God says, that matters to my heart and that is enough for me to act in certain ways and to do certain things. And, you know, that's a great encouragement because sometimes we may think, well, you know, what I am or what I'm a part of is insignificant or who I'm able to affect in my ministry efforts is so insignificant. Look, God said 50 people. God says 50 righteous people. That matters to me. Though that seem a small remnant in comparison to the bigger picture, God says that godly remnant is very important to me. It has great purpose, and God says, I would spare the entire place for those 50. Well, verse 27, Abraham's a realist. It's one of the reasons I like the guy. He says, he answered and said, okay, indeed now, I am but dust and ashes, and I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. So notice, 
a man of humility. He's not presumptuous. He's not bargaining with God here. Don't, don't get that picture. There's his true communion and intercession as the Spirit of God's directing him as an intercessor. He says, suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. So, Lord, okay, that's great you do it for 50, but what if I'm off by a few? And he's starting to realize the reality. He's thinking, what if there's five less? Would you destroy all the city for just a lack of five people? So he said, if I find 45, I will not destroy it. God's still merciful. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. And God said, I would do, not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he, God said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Again, notice in each picture just the cr incredible mercy of God. The numbers are shrinking. The mercy of God is continuing through this whole process. Verse 31, indeed now... I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. Maybe all Lot's done is reached his next door neighbor. You know, that's, we're getting pretty small here. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. And then he said, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak, but once more, suppose 10 should be found there. He goes all the way down to 10. All the way down. He says, look, Lord, what if truly it is just Lot? and his wife, and the kids, and who they're married to. What if it's just one family? Does one family matter to you? Does one family have a way of impacting your heart and what you're doing in relation to your spiritual work and things on the earth? And God says, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. If you find me ten righteous people, God says ten righteous people could restrain the judgment of God. Now that's incredible. Remember, Jesus tells us in the New Testament that he says we are the light of the world, and he says we are the salt of the earth. And one of the things that salt is, it's a, it's a preserving influence. They would salt their meats in that day without refrigeration to keep it from rotting, and it would, in a sense, it would retard the rotting process. So as they would rub the salt into their meats, it would keep things from corrupting and from rotting. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth as believers. You are the only influence, he says, in the world that is restraining any of the rotting, corrupting, filthy, defiling influences that are constantly pushing and pushing to make progress as the world just deteriorates and morally the fiber work is just falling apart all around us. What an amazing thing. Listen, can I encourage you? Be the light of the world and be the salt of the earth. I tell you this. I am thoroughly convinced that the only thing that holds back the hand of God's judgment upon our own nation is the many righteous, godly people who are still here, who do love Jesus, who are the light of the world, and who are seeking to be the salt of the earth. God has no reason not to judge our nation. You know, Billy Graham said years and years ago, you know, if God doesn't soon judge America, he's going to have to someday apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's tremendous truth to that. And we haven't, in, you know, we haven't improved. Your presence as a child of God and as a strong, bright witness and a believer and someone who stands up for righteousness and is not ashamed to say what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong, whether you agree with it or not, this is what is righteous. 
and I still believe that this is what a righteous, that that is, that influence in our culture, in our schools, in our colleges, in our societies, in our job places, in the government, if God's people don't bury their heads in the sand and, and run away from government, that is the only preserving influence that exists. Look at this. God says, for ten righteous people, ten, he says, I would hold back my judgment for a time for ten righteous people. Now, the obvious thing is sadly, guess what? There wasn't even 10. Because in the next chapter, God judges. But that's pretty gracious of God. That, that The indication is, God says, I wouldn't do it for 10. There's not even 10. That's how bad Sodom and Gomorrah had gotten. God had no recourse because there was even less than that. His judgment had already been determined. Verse 33, so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Chapter 19, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So we now find Lot, as I said, he's made these progressive steps. Genesis, back in chapter 13, when he separated, as I said, he looked to Sodom, and then ultimately it says he pitched his tent in Sodom, and now he's in the gate of Sodom, and there's this progressive involvement in the things of the world system in that day. And, and th it wasn't an overnight thing. It was a progressive thing. He looked longingly towards it, and then he pitched his tent. He started making a provision for the flesh. He started kind of moving a little closer in that direction. Then he settled down in Sodom, and now it says he's in the gate of Sodom. And important to understand, the gate of a city in those ancient cultures was the place where people of influence and position would be at and where they would make decisions politically. The gate of the city is where decisions were made politically. It was where the leaders of the community sat and they would dialogue about strategies for politics and how the, the area was to be run. They would discuss military plans and strategies. The, the people who sat in the gate were people of influence. They were the leaders in the land, if you understand what I'm saying. The, and this is where we find Lot, which shows you that Lot's not just dwelling in Sodom, he is engrossed in Sodom. He's got a position of response. He is deeply entrenched into the system of Sodom. He is fully engrossed. And did he get there overnight? Nope. It was a gradual progression. But now he has got himself, he's one of the representative leaders there in the area of Sodom. Again, understanding that about the gate of Sodom and the gate of city, that's what Jesus meant when he said, I will build my church, and he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what Jesus was referring to. The gates were where strategies were made, where plans were made. And, and Jesus was saying the gates of hell. In other words, he was saying, I'll build my church, and the strategies of hell, and all the plans and the schemes of hell, however they be made among the devil and his demons, they will not prevail against the church. They may come against the church, but Jesus said they won't prevail. That's what Jesus was referring to when he made that particular statement. So here's Lot. He's in the gate of Sodom. The two angels show up. And when Lot saw them, notice, he realized like Abraham, apparently, though they were in the form of men, he realized that these were still, it seems, divine beings. Because it says he rose to meet them and he ran over. And in a very humble way, he bows himself with his face towards the ground. So he discerns. These aren't just two normal men. He recognizes somehow through discernment these are divine beings who have just showed up. And he said, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night 
and wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. So he doesn't know what they're there for, other than that he's quite surprised that two divine angelic beings would show up in Sodom because he knows the culture of Sodom. He's thinking this must not be a good thing, and they don't really belong in a place like this. They just don't seem to fit right here. Because the furthest from anything of godly influence was what he ever saw going on in that particular area. So he says, turn in, typical hospitality in the Eastern culture, wash your feet, spend the night, you know, have a meal, lodge at my house in the morning, you can continue on your journey. And they said, no, thanks anyway, but verse 2, we will spend the night in the open square, meaning like right in the downtown area, you know, kind of the ideas... If you envision in your mind, no, don't, we don't need to come to your house. We appreciate the offer, but, but we'll just sleep right here in Central Square. You know, just, just, we'll, we'll be fine here. We'll just stay here overnight. We don't want to trouble you. Verse 3, but Lot insisted strongly. Why? Because he knew what the culture was like. He knew that was extremely dangerous. In his mind, that was a very risky, dangerous thing. He insisted, so they turned into him and entered his house. And then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Interesting. He has these two divine guests come into his home. Remember, Abraham did the same thing. When the Lord and these two angels showed up at Abraham's place of lodging, he was sitting in the tent door. And remember, he ran, he bypassed, remember chapter 18? He bypassed all the servants, and he ran right into Sarah, and he said, Sarah, look, we have guests for dinner. One is God, the other two are angels. We're not giving this over to the servants. We need to, and, and Sarah and Abraham, these two lovers of God, they begin to prepare the special meal. Interesting here, it says that Lot, notice, Lot made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. No mention here of Mrs. Lot. We know she exists, but no mention. She doesn't seem to be involved helping. Maybe she's not interested. Uh, maybe because of the lifestyle they had acquired there in Sodom, all she liked doing was making reservations. I don't know. You know, but it could seem to indicate that you know she was disinterested in being involved. And Lot's the only one here who has some sense of reverence for who these individuals are. He makes this meal. Now they before they laid down to sleep that night, verse four. Watch what begins to unfold now. The men of the city, watch the language here, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Again, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste words, and God doesn't try and be redundant when he doesn't have to. He's trying to indicate something to us. It says, the old, the young, all the men from every quarter. So this is just everybody from the woodwork comes out. Now all the men of the area of Sodom and they surrounded the house. Again, word passed that quickly in less than 24 hours. Hey, two new men have just come into the city of Sodom. That quick, the whole community of men, the old men, the young men from every word. There's two new men in our community. Because watch how brazen and ungodly and deteriorated their morals have become. They surround the house where Lot is at with these two angelic messengers. And they called to Lot and said to him, watch this, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. The idea there very clearly is basically you know, a, a, a reference to homosexual rape 
that they're saying, hey, bring out those two guys. Those two guys, they are fresh meat. They are the only two that we have not had a chance to abuse or to treat in this way. Bring out those men. I mean, just talk about brazen. I mean, talk about just no moral bearings. Bring them out to us that we may know them. Again, they wanted to sexually abuse them in homosexual rape. Bring them out that we may know them carnally. So, again, you begin to get a picture of what was taking place in this culture. You begin to get a picture of where they were at and and one of the major problems in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Ezekiel chapter 16 mentions other problems that existed in the culture as well, but clearly the Holy Spirit sets before us this horrific moral digression that had marked the culture. And because they had idleness of time and and they were a prosperous culture, Ezekiel 16 tells us that, I think that was one of the things that contributed to the moral decline of the culture. Because see, when you have a culture where people are for daily survival, working hard to get another meal for the day, and they are so exhausted from just trying to survive day to day to day to day to day, A lot of times you don't have time to go out and reinvent morality. But when you have a culture where there's surplus and people have lots of idle time on their hands and lots of time to think and to think wrong thoughts and to allow wrong desires to captivate their attention and to motivate their lusts and their cravings, a lot of times this begins to be a contributing factor to mark what ultimately leads people in unbridled passions to get themselves to a place where they digress morally to where they do. And you can see the filthy moral climate that existed in that day, that homosexuality was an extreme problem. And let's be very clear, God's perspective on the sexual sin of homosexual practice is very clear in the Bible. Listen, is it any more wrong than heterosexual sin? Absolutely not. Adultery, any type of sexual immorality, sex before marriage, the Bible is very clear. These are, these are all wrong before the Lord. But this was a clearly rampant problem in the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God's word is very clear. Leviticus 18.22, God says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. In Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, it speaks of how these particular sexual sins of homosexuality stem from lusts and unclean desires in the heart of a man sinfully, which leads to dishonoring their bodies, it says, exchanging the natural use for what is against nature. Again, when you just look at the physiological makeup of a man and a woman, it's obvious that's natural. God created a man with this plumbing system. He created a woman with this plumbing system. That's natural. Again, does that condone any other type of sexual sin a man and a woman can be involved in? Absolutely not. But God says homosexual sin, it, it, not only is it sinful, but it's against nature. It's contrary to natural design, the way God created our bodies. It's evident that, that it's completely contrary to nature. 
And because of that, in many ways, it has extremely destructive effects. And, and the sin of a homosexual practice is no different than any other sin. The bottom line is, it is a, a struggle within that, like any other struggle a person could have in any other area of their sin nature, it needs to be resisted in the recognition that I may have these inclinations towards this sin and these temptations... But the truth of the matter is, we all have inclinations, and we all have temptations towards all sorts of sins. And some people may not have the inclination or the temptation to be attracted to someone of the same sex, but somebody else may have a very strong inclination and struggle with having an anger issue. But they shouldn't be able to say, well, hey, because I was made this way and I had such a strong anger problem, therefore I have the right, God made me a murderer. No, you have an anger issue, but you need to realize God condemns murder, so you need to resist the temptation. It's just the particular temptation that you wrestle with. And the problem is, is when we begin to take this blanket approach, which is one of the problems of our current culture, where we want to excuse certain things and not excuse other things. Well, listen, we all have inclinations towards things. I don't diminish that certain people for various different reasons, may have an inclination to this particular struggle. But you have to resist that inclination and desire in the same way someone has a problem with gambling or someone has a problem with lying or someone has a problem with substance abuse or someone has a problem with anger and wanting to you know, lose their temper and hurt and harm someone. It's all the same before the Lord, and it must be resisted. Here in the, the community of Sodom and Gomorrah, it had gone rampant to where they, in a brazen sense, were wanting to forcefully abuse these men. And verse 6, it says that Lot went out to the men through the doorway, and he shuts the door, and he said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Now again, is this because he's vexed in his spirit, or is it because, too, he realizes who these men are, and all the more he's thinking, Oh, my goodness, this is just going to be so atrocious he says please don't do so wickedly verse 8 look where lots at those see now i have two daughters who have not known a man so two of his daughters that were still virgins please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof now if that does not show you where Lot's heart and mind is at at this point, and how confused his perspective is. Now, I understand in a way that very different than our culture, that in Eastern culture, they, and the Bedouins to this day still do, they take very seriously hospitality when someone is under their roof, and the importance and sort of the honor code of protecting them. However, no father in his right mind is going to say, look, you want to rape these two men? I have an alternative. Why don't you take my two virgin daughters and abuse them and satisfy your desires on them? Instead, it shows you how distorted his perspective is. But can I say this? It indicates to us as well how when we're not walking in right relationship with the Lord, how distorted our perspective and our decision-making processes can be. When we are not walking right before the Lord, we can have some of the most off-the-wall ideas and perspectives and viewpoints of trying to what's lot trying to do he's kind of just trying to problem solve and in this from the hip reactionary approach he just well i got to come up with some kind of plan and, and he just 
totally in a unloving, corrupt, selfish way. Let me protect myself and my problem. And so what if everybody else around me becomes a casualty and hurt and abused in the process? He has no care or concern for his own family, no care or concern for what the... It just shows you how distorted his perspective was. Thankfully, these guys don't like women for these two girls. Uh, that was the saving grace for them. So verse 9, watch what happens. Once they're refused, look how they become more brazen and more militant. They then said, stand back. And they said to him, this one came to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, that is the two angels, reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, that they became weary of trying to find the door. So again, take notice in verse 9. When they don't get their request, this isn't just homosexual drive. You are talking about militant homosexuality. Stand back. All right, you want to be like, we're going to get what we want, whether you like it or not. If we got to break the door down and we'll just indulge and abuse you too. This is militant, man. This is brazen pressing forward in a very strong way with incredible desire to indulge and satisfy their own lusts and cravings. It says they pressed hard against Lot. Thankfully, these two angels intervened. They, they yank Lot back in to save him, to preserve him as well, as now they're going after Lot. And interesting, here's Lot. He's in Sodom. He's sitting in the gate. He's a believer. Second Peter 2, verse 7 and 8 tells us that. And he's struggling with the ungodliness all around him. And he's thinking, but you know, I, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm living in the world, and, and I, I'm, I'm, but, but I'm, I'm okay. And I've got respect among these people. See how quick their friendship ended? All of a sudden, he won't give them their desire and to say, you know, who do you think you are? We don't respect you. And all of a sudden, supposedly, his reputation becomes real evident among all the people that he saw he was so cool with. All of a sudden, they say, who do you think you are? You're just like one of us, and we'll just abuse you too. We don't care about you. And, you know, what a great reminder. We think, oh, well, you know, I'm just trying to chum-chum with all my friends from the world, and, and I'm just, I, I can kind of straddle both worlds, and I can, I can follow God and be a friend of the world. And, and I'm saying that we shouldn't reach the world and love the world and with an intention of trying to share the gospel of Christ. But when we're trying to play this lot thing, and we want to be as carnal as we can like a little chameleon Christian Listen, that's a, that's a total failed mission. Uh, they instantly, they're not Lot's friends. They could care less about Lot. They're ready to throw him to the curb. All they care about is getting what they want. In fact, look at verse 11. It says they're struck with this kind of supernatural blindness. And it says they became weary of trying to find the door. Now, if you were coming to a doorway and all of a sudden some supernatural, you know, some kind of blindness or darkness or confusion comes over them, wouldn't you think you'd be like, whoa, what in the world happened? And, and, and like, give up? <laughs> I mean, I probably like, something's really wrong. I just lost my sight here. But it says they wearied themselves trying to find the door. It, talk about the drive to satisfy their sinful desire. God strikes them blind and they're still pushing forward. Man, don't tell me that the sin nature is not strong. How powerful. I mean, look how much they are determined to pursue their own sin. When somebody wants something, man, 
It is amazing how hard somebody will keep pushing. Keep pushing to indulge the sexual sin. Keep pushing to indulge the substance and to, you know, to, to get drunk or to, or to you know, whatever. they'll keep pushing and pushing. If they want it, they will push and push hard. The sin nature is powerful. That's why the Bible says, look, here's what you do. Crucify the flesh. You just kill it. <laughs> you don't play with it. You don't make any provision. You've got to crucify it because it's powerful. And these men, again, because they're habitually in bondage to this, it is just compelling and controlling them. They're blinded. They're still trying to find the door. And the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? So now the angels turned to Lot. Do you have anybody else, son-in-law, maybe your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city? They tell Lot, take them and get out of here. Lot, you are not where you're supposed to be. And the word from heaven comes to Lot and says, Lot, you know you're where you're not supposed to be. Get out of here. And sometimes I think the Lord comes into our life and he's got to do whatever it takes. And he, you know, he yanks us out of a mess even. He says, listen, get out of here. Get out of here. Don't stay here one minute longer. Escape for your life. Get your family. Get out of here. Verse 13, why? For we will destroy this place because of the outcry that has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us, they tell Lot, to destroy this place. So Lot went out, verse 14, to his sons-in-laws who had married his daughters and said, Get up and get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city Kind of sad, verse 14, but to his sons-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. So Lot now comes and tries to bring the word of the Lord to his son-in-laws. Now, question is from verse 12, did he have sons as well? The angels say, you know, do you have son-in-law, sons, daughters? If he had sons, maybe his sons were so entrenched in Sodom that he thought to himself, my sons are too far gone. They won't even listen to me anymore. So he tries his son-in-laws. Either way, look at the horrible testimony Lot has with his own family. He goes to his son-in-laws. He tries to share the word of the Lord with them to warn them because God's just given him the word of God. And when he tries to share it, he has so lost his influence and his impact, they just laugh him off. You're right. All of a sudden, you have the word of the Lord now. All of a sudden, you're trying to talk to me about God now. And they think he's either joking around or... They just think he's a joke. Your relationship with God's a joke. It's fake, man. Well, we see the way that you live. How tragic. Part of the biggest problem with carnal Christianity is we ruin our testimony. We become spiritually impotent, and we no longer have the ability to influence people around us. And we don't realize it. And especially his own family. This guy's lost influence in his own family. They don't even respect him anymore. He has no ability to communicate the things of God because there's no clout. Listen, our reputation, our testimony is the thing that gives us a platform to share things with people. If we don't live upright in integrity before the Lord, we're not going to have the opportunity when the time comes to speak on the Lord's behalf. And those times, sometimes they're few and far between. But you want to say something in a way. I want to live before my family, before my wife, before my kids, before my relatives, before the few small group of friends that God gives to me in such a way whereby I have 
earned a reputation of respect before them in my relationship with God, whereby if I want to convey spiritual truth, I can share it in a way that hopefully it has the biggest impact possible because that person takes it as a credible thing and not a questionable thing where it's like, come on, why don't I listen to you? You're like every other joke. You're like every other of these one you know, spiritual hypocrites and jokes. And a lot has become that. How sad is he tries to share with them to warn them the judgment of God's coming. And instead of listening and escaping when the judgment of God's looming over Sodom, they just thought that he was joking. And when the morning dawned, notice the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters, probably referring to the two daughters that weren't married, the two that were still virgins, take your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while, verse 16, while he lingered, are you kidding me? God says, I'm going to smoke the city. I'm going to judge the city. Get out of here. And look what Lot's doing. He's delaying. He's lingering. He's still procrastinating. Why? Because he is so attached to Sodom, it's hard letting go of it now. Because he, he sunk roots into it. And now it's hard. And he's struggling with the carnality within his own heart because he's come to love all the comforts of Sodom. Sodom pampered to his flesh. It was pleasurable, enjoyable, comfortable. It, it was palatable. And now, oh man, do I really have to leave? And he's, he's lingering instead of just immediately responding when he, the judgment of God's ready to come upon the community. So notice the men, the angels, took hold of his hand his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and brought him out and set him outside the city. So literally, God in his mercy, and I love this, he is so confused, he has got himself so entangled in something, God loves him so much, that Jesus, like a good shepherd, you know, he goes out and he finds us in the briar bushes that we get caught in sometimes. And you know what I mean? You know, we wander away from the Lord. We get entangled in some things we shouldn't. And what does Jesus do? Like a loving shepherd, he mercifully comes and he says, you're all tangled in things you shouldn't be. You're hurting yourself. You're harming. And he rescues us out of it. And he takes Lot by the hand and his wife and, and the rest of and, and these two men, they got everybody by the hand. They must have looked like a daycare, you know, crossing the street or something. <laughs> They're all in. say, come on. Give me your hand. And they start walking him out. And literally, God's yanking him out. I don't know about you. Praise the Lord that he loves us enough that he will take us by the hand. Even when we're lingering and remaining in a spot where God's saying, you're not where you're supposed to be. That he comes and says, would you give me your hand? <laughs> and he actually comes and gets us. And, and here he's, he's walking him out, being merciful to him in his own weakness and foolishness. Verse 17, so it came to pass when they brought them outside, that he said, escape, notice again for your life, notice verse 17, important here, do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain, escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And Lot said, please, no, my lords, he says, your servant has found favor in your sight, and if you've increased your mercy, which you've shown me by saving life, I cannot escape to the mountains. That's too far, he says. Can't, can't we find a compromise lest some evil overtake me there and I die? You know, it's, that's going to be too difficult. I, you know, that's, you're talking about a real sacrifice to do that. And again, this guy in his carnality is looking for shortcuts and any kind of little... Sh it just shows you where he's at at this point. He's, he's hedging on obedience. He's struggling with just making that 
follow through and what the Lord is asking to do. Verse 20, see now, he says, this city is near. How about, can I just go over here instead? He's trying to negotiate terms here, which again, just shows you how fleshly he was. This is what the flesh does. The flesh is always trying to look for convenient, easy, you know, it, it wants to hedge. Oh, I, I don't want to make that big of a sacrifice. I mean, can't I kind of just go halfway on that? Can't I go three quarters? Do I got to, you know, do I got to fully, and Jesus says what? If your arm offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, just pluck it out. Jesus says it's better to have one eye and to be right with God than to have two eyes and to be cast into hell. You know, Jesus talks about radical obedience. But again, this is the picture, and sometimes we know this. When we're living worldly, though we know God, we're living worldly, our heart has been calloused over with a love for the world, and we're not in a good spot when we're trying to bargain and barter with the Lord. Recognize that as a red flag when you find that. He says, can I go over here, he says, and my soul shall live. And they said to him, verse 21, see, I have favored you concerning this thing and i will not overthrow this city which you have spoken i'm talking about awful kind the lord's being very gracious to this guy all right i'll make sure the judgment doesn't fall upon that particular area verse 22 hurry escape there for i cannot do anything until you arrive there therefore the name of that city was called zoar now, please take note, maybe even underline, I have it in my Bible, underline verse 22. Lot is told as a believer. Second Peter 2, verse 7 and 8, tells us that he was a righteous man more than once, that he was a believer. Hard to grasp that because Lot is a pretty carnal believer, but it tells us that he was a genuine man of faith, that he had faith in God, but he's living a very carnal life in his practice. But yet he believes... And God is trying to remove him before the judgment of God is poured out. God's distinguishing between the righteous and the unrighteous. And he says to him, verse 22, I cannot do anything until you get out of here. doesn't say I will not. God's saying I cannot. What? God's saying I cannot bring my judgment upon the unrighteous until... The righteous have been removed. We see this heart of God all throughout Scripture. We see this in the New Testament. I firmly have the conviction that the Lord will remove his church before he brings his judgment upon the world. The Bible says that the church and God's people were not appointed to wrath. I believe the Lord can't bring the judgment of God until we have been removed, until his bride has been removed. If there is punishment we still have to endure, then to me it makes me question the sufficiency of what Jesus did on the cross. If what Jesus did was sufficient to bear the wrath of the God for the sins of the world, and I've embraced that, then I've escaped the wrath of God. I'm not appointed to wrath. The wrath of God is coming upon those who have not embraced what Jesus has done for them, the Christ-rejecting world. And as long as we're here, the Lord cannot bring his judgment. I believe Lot is just a picture of that. And even in his carnality, he's not even a very godly believer. But because of that relationship that he had. Well, verse 24, it says, Then, after he escaped, the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities and all the plain and the inhabitants of the cities 
and what grew on the ground, but, verse 26, sad testimony, but his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Look, I'm not here to debate how that took place, and you can read commentaries that try and think of some natural phenomenon in connection to the you know, the, the, the Dead Sea there and all the minerals that exist and where Sodom is located. Look, the Bible says that I believe it. The point being is this, is the Lord told them in verse 17, don't look back. And she looked back. And the idea is that she looked back with a longing, craving, that she, that she was struggling with letting go of what was behind. Again, God was getting them out of Sodom and he was taking them out of Sodom. And it was difficult enough to get Lot out of Sodom. It was even harder to get Sodom out of Lot's family. Because it had become entrenched. They Once they had been exposed to it, Mrs. Lot could not let go of Sodom. And she was struggling with walking in obedience because she was so attached to the world and to Sodom and all those things that she had become a part of. Interesting, Jesus in Luke 17 talking about how in the same way it was in the days of Lot, he says, so shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And he uses the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah saying, look, what characterized Sodom and Gomorrah, that will characterize the world in the last days before Jesus returns. And then Jesus, Luke 17, verse 32 says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. In other words, Jesus says, look, let Lot's wife be an example. An example of what? Of looking back to the world and not being able to separate ourselves from the world in the last days when we're all being tempted more and more to want to embrace the world and indulge the world and, and be in you know in relationship with the Lord. But, but can't we just embrace and, and, and be a... And Jesus says, no. Christianity is discipleship. Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life, and why can't I be a Christian? But And Jesus says, no. If you want to save your life, he says, you're going to lose it. But if you lose my, your life for my sake, he says, then you'll find it. And Jesus says, the key to truly following me is saying, Lord, I give up my life. I'm willing to let go whatever I have to let go of to embrace you. And he says that in relationship to Lot's wife as an example. She struggled with letting go of the past, and because of that, Jesus says, remember, be constantly remembering the example of Lot's wife here. Again, this poor guy, talk about he's losing everything. This little trip to Sodom, the guy's losing everything. Lost his testimony, loses his wife now in the process because he was in Sodom. He looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah, it says... And the land of the plain, excuse me, verse 27 is referring to Abraham now who rises up in the morning. And he looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah and the land of the plain. And he saw, behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of the furnace. And he's probably thinking, man, did Lot make it out of there before God judged? Did he hear my prayers? And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. What's that tell us? That part of Lot's escape was the result of Abraham's intercession. God did use his prayers and cooperation to deliver Lot. In verse 30, then Lot went up from Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, it says, and his two daughters were all that were left with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Talk about a mess. Here's this guy that says, you know what, man? 
look at Sodom. I can get rich there. I can live so comfortably there. And it'll be good. The wife, the kids, man, I can give them all kinds of stuff and, and we'll prosper and have a good, comfortable, enjoyable life. And look at its resulted in for Lot. He's lost his reputation. He's lost his wife. He's lost a good portion of his kids. And the guy's living in a cave. Empty and lonely and all by himself. You know, we need to really be wise and recognize there are more important things than the goodies that the world offers. Like a good marriage and kids that stick around with us and follow the Lord and our reputation and our testimony and not living lonely and empty in a cave. This guy lost everything. Here he is living in a cave with his two daughters. And let's just read through these last verses because commentary is difficult to even want to say anything. Look, look how it digresses worse. Verse 31, Now the firstborn said to the younger sister, Our father is old, and there's no man on the earth to come into us as the custom of all the earth. There may be thinking there was total destruction with that judgment of fire and brimstone that fell. Verse 32, the older sister says, Come, let us make our father drink wine, get him drunk, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So they get their father drunk. Again, they rush out, quick escape. Apparently wine was still important. Here they are, they're in a cave, but they still got wine. Shows you where the family was at. They still have wine. And, and now they make their father drink. Something's really wrong when kids are encouraging their parents to get drunk. They make their, and he says he gets so drunk that his older daughter sleeps with him in incest to try and raise up lineage. Again, shows you where the kids' moral perspective, they grew up in Sodom. Obviously, they've been exposed to things that, that to them, this was nothing. Well, let's just get dad drunk, so drunk that his inhibitions will be down. He won't know our inhibitions. And that's, you know, Again, whenever we see alcohol in the scriptures, it's never attached to anything good. What do you have here? Alcohol and horrendous sexual sin. Tremendous poor judgment. And so drunk, he doesn't even know what happens. And the top it all, verse 34, it says, The next day the firstborn said, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight, and then you go in. Your turn. And lay with him that we might preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And did not, he says, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both daughters, last statement about Lot. Look at this epitaph. Thus both daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Wow. I mean, you want to talk about just horrific digression because of going after the world in the way that he did. Verse 37, then the firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab, and he's the father of the Moabites, which we'll see quite a bit of in the Old Testament. The younger bore a son, called his name Ben-Ami, and he's the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Again, the Moabites and the Ammonites they become many of the Arab peoples who live among the area of Jordan, and they become constant problems for the nation of Israel long term. Again, two decisions made among family 
in a moral digression, alcohol involved, sexual sin, and again, far-reaching problems. They give birth to two people groups who create problems for years and years and years. So don't tell me, oh, what's one little decision? What's one night? One night can affect generations and generations ahead. You know, I would encourage you to do this. When you have the time, take Second Peter chapter 3, particularly Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, because, and let me leave you with this because our time's eluded us, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 to 18 reminds us that, listen, our current world right now, it's on the brink of the judgment of God in the same way that world was then. And, and God's fiery judgment is going to come against a Christ-rejecting world. And Second Peter 3, verse 10 to 18 says, In light of that, as a believer, how should you live? How should I live? This is all going to dissolve. First John says, don't love the world and the things of the world. Listen, love the Lord. We have too many people who profess to know Jesus who love the world. And it makes us impotent in our testimony to unsaved people. Listen, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself and be the salt and light. This is all going to fade away, man. Time is short. Now's the time that we need to be spirit-filled, on-fire believers who are influencing our world, not people who are just looking for eternal fire insurance who claim the name of Jesus and have a belief in the Lord, but yet are losing our marriages and losing our kids and ruining our reputation. Man, I pray by the grace of God, do you, that that we would not be guilty of that because we all had the propensity. But I pray that we'd stay close to the Lord and in our love for him that he would keep us where he'd have us to be. Let's stand, let's pray. Sorry for running a few minutes over. I just wanted to finish our chapter there. Father, thank you for your word. And and Lord, to read these things, just kind of difficult to even recognize. Yet the truth, Lord, you've set these things before us to show us what we're capable of apart from you. Help us, Lord. I pray that not one of us in this room would ever find ourselves in the place of some of these things that we read here. And Lord, I pray if we're heading there or even if we've gone there, that Jesus, like a shepherd, you'd come rescue us. Be merciful to us like you were to Lot, Lord. Come get us out of it and rescue us for your namesake and for our benefit. And we ask you to do those things in our lives in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.